Hello and welcome to Terrace Memoirs, episode 10, uh, where we go into the latest delve into the life of a football supporter. If you don't know me by now, I am Dave Harris. I'm a Reading fan of 32 years, season ticket holder of 22. Um, and it's been a, a while um, for about the last month or so, but many thanks to all of the women who've recorded episodes with me in support of Her Game 2. June uh, was uh, obviously Her Game 2 month. Um, I still have a couple to record for the series, extending the series into July uh, because of diary commitments and, and, and ever-changing diary commitments, shall we say. Um, but I hope all who have listened have found it informative and gained a good insight into the issues women can face in the world of football um, and, uh, and have, have at least given them the opportunity to, uh, to think twice um, about uh, some of the things that they, they, that they face um, and uh, perhaps reflect on, uh, on their own behaviour as well um, to ensure that they don't fall foul of, uh, of any traps, as it were. Um, to remind, uh, just give the girls a follow on Twitter at HerGame2. Uh, there's merch aplenty as well from a variety of online outlets, uh, like the Terrace, for example. Um, all profits are given to charity, um, and there's an ever-increasing website full of content, which is hergame2.co.uk. Um, and on the HerGame2 theme, um, and in the aftermath of recording with Bristol City fan Leah Case, uh, Leah and I spoke afterwards and Leah suggested that her fiancé may like to record an episode. And, um, well, he's on the other end of the line, shall we say. Um, I'm delighted to welcome Pompey fan Harry Davis to the show. How are you, Harry? Yeah, good, thank you. Yourself? Yes, I'm very well. I'm very well. Looking forward to this one. Yes. So, um, before we get into any of the, uh, the old Pompey stuff, there is um, a slight... Uh, sort of sideshow going on at the moment uh, in the form of Euro 2020. Yeah, I've um, heard about it. It, it. Apparently, it's quite interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what, what are your thoughts? Um, we've got Is a chance. Coming? We've got a chance. I don't. It's easy to say it's coming home in all the you know all the glory, and after maybe after a couple of beers, you're like, oh, it's all coming home. It's coming home. But you have to be realistic and think. We we always get this far sometimes, and we don't quite make it. So I don't want to make predictions. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. We'll just see what Wednesday holds, and if we get to the final, then we've beaten the last fifty-five years of achievements. You know, up to sixty-six, and that's all I can say on it, really, for England. Yeah, absolutely. What I do like about um, England is the way that they've managed their way through the tournament. Mm. It looks like um, you know Spain, Italy. Uh, Denmark as well, all the other three, they've kind of gone at it hammer and tongs, haven't they? But England have just kind of not quietly gone about their business, but they've they've been very pragmatic in their approach, very very structured, very organised, um, and done basically what they need to do. Um, and they just seem to be getting stronger as the tournament goes on. Yeah, um, I mean, they've got the job done. I think that's the main thing. You know, I think the only exception with that would probably be the Scotland game. I think a lot of people were quite angry upset i was quite angry i'll happily admit that you know i was quite vocal on twitter about it um and i think that speaks for a lot of people and we were kind of looking at that i think this is the second game in classic england we're going to throw it away again you know we're two games into a tournament and we may not even qualify from the group fast forward to two weeks later we're into a semi-final of the tournament against a team who on paper we should be beating um and we've got a chance of going to the final so, you know, football is a funny old game. You and I know that. And it can turn on a, on a sixpence. Absolutely. Absolutely, it can. Um, but, of course, Denmark on Wednesday. 
Um, mm. And they're obviously a very, very galvanised squad, very galvanised nation as well after what happened with uh, Christian Eriksen. Yes. Um, and it's going to be, like I say, on football, as you, as, you, as you rightly said, it's not played on paper. Um, it's going to be a very difficult test regardless of, uh, of, of whether or not we, in inverted commas, should be beating them. Absolutely. I think the Danes themselves, I think they were a bit shell-shocked after the Christian Eriksen situation. Um, the following game, they were a little bit sluggish and then they really came out of the traps against Russia. I think it was kind of do or die at that point and they, they beat them convincingly, was it 5-0 in the end? 4-1, um, uh, wasn't it? 4-1, something like that. It was a, it was a glut of goals in one game and, and from there on, you're thinking, right, the manager's team talk every game is going to be, let's do it for Christian Eriksen. And that should be enough to inspire the players who witnessed that firsthand. I, I watched it on the telly at the time, and I think millions of other people did as well. And I was just in shock. I remember the Fabrice Mwamba heart attack. I watched that, yeah. and that was shocking. And I knew the minute it happened, you know, he's had a heart attack. You can see it. And people going, oh, he swallowed his tongue, he swallowed his tongue. He may have done after a heart attack, but he's on the ground being, you know, given chest compressions. That's a heart attack. Mm. Um, and the players credit to them you know they did the right thing they surrounded him but they had to be a part of that and they had to witness that they couldn't walk off the pitch like the Finnish players did like the referee did like the coaches did they stood on that pitch and witnessed it happen they didn't leave his side until he came off on a stretcher and he was breathing and that would have shell-shocked anybody I was shocked for, for days afterwards and the fact that he survived was quite frankly a miracle if he hadn't have done I think the whole tournament would have been cancelled um and they're playing on pure confidence. It's down to England, ultimately, to manage the game accordingly um, and, and try and... One thing I've noticed is to try and tire them out somewhat. The Danes, in the last two or three games, have really gone at their opposition and caught them out, not really expecting it. I think the Wales game is a prime example. They beat them 4-0. Again, a glut of goals. Once they got two against Wales, it was game over. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And that's no that's no discredit to Wales whatsoever at all. Um, they've got a very good side, but I think they were just kind of shocked that the Danes could come out the traps as quickly as they did two games in a row. Um, and, and yeah, England have got to be wary of that. But again, I say that we haven't conceded a goal in the tournament yet. So no, absolutely, and so <laughs> uh, it, it it's going to be a little bit. I think for for a lot of people, um, uh, a little bit kind of bittersweet because everybody wants the Danes to do well. Mm. But you know the whole of the whole of England wants wants you know essentially we we need to be those party poopers. Of course, um, and I think um, the main thing to take away from it as well: the Danes probably were never expected to get to the semi-final with or without Christian Eriksen. You look at some of the teams um, that have been on the other side of the draw from us. You know your your um, your France, your Portugal, your Spain, your Italy, your Belgium. If they'd have come up against any of them, I'm not convinced they would have gone through. Um, a bit like England in a way, people say we've had a bit of a fortunate draw. I won't deny we have. The only tough game out of all of that was Germany and we overcame it. Um, so, yeah, you could make that argument for, for the Danes in that respect, but you've got to respect them like anyone in this tournament. I think we gave Ukraine, for example, the full respect they deserved. They got to a quarter final. They were the worst of the best third place teams. They played 120 minutes basically on their knees towards the end of the uh, the Sweden game. And they scraped through at the last minute. Yeah. We gave them the full respect. They got there on on merit. We need to give Denmark that that respect as well. We can't think they're going to be a pushover because, believe me, they, they won't be. They've got a lot of good players in that team. Absolutely, they have. Just just going back to the whole um, Christian Eriksen thing mm. um, as a as a um, 
Portsmouth fan. Um, I'm not sure if you if you were um, around uh, when it happened, but am I right in saying I think it was Aaron Flahaven, uh, your keeper, yes. uh, collapsed on the pitch in the late 90s, I believe. He did, um, yeah, sad, yeah. Sadly, didn't make it in the end, but um, yeah, very sad story. That I, I wasn't really around at the time to really witness it or remember a lot of it, but the stories and stuff have always been told. I've got a um, commemorative picture, funnily enough, right behind me in my office, and right in the centrepiece is Aaron Flahaven. Um, you know, 1975 to 2001. So, you know, that's when he died was 2001 and yeah, very promising up and coming young goalkeeper. And yeah, unfortunately he didn't make it. And it's a shame. I think we ended up retiring. I think it was another 12 shirt in his memory and then dedicated it to the fans or, or something along those lines. I can't remember the ins and outs of it, but mm-hmm. yeah, he is, he's always remembered um, by the football club and Alan Knight, the legend, Alan Knight, most appearances for us as, you know, as a goalkeeper, he was kind of Alan Knight's understudy at the time. He was sort of nearing the end of his career and Flahaven was ready to step into his shoes. And I think it rocked everybody at the time. Um, it, yeah, it, it's a horrible situation to have, but I think a lot of lessons have been learned now and, you know, defibrillators are much more accessible, uh, mm-hmm. especially stadiums where you've got professional athletes playing and all the rest of it. I think the next stage now is to have that sort of protection at grassroots level upwards all the way to the professional game um, because it can happen to anyone. You know, player can have a heart attack on a pitch and needs to wait for an ambulance to take them to a hospital to then find out they're not going to make it when those first probably five minutes are vital to deciding whether they make it or not. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. Um, so I thought I'd just 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 mention that because mm. uh, it is something that's obviously affected Portsmouth Football Club. Mm. I can remember it. Uh, it was it, I think it was a Tuesday night game. I forget who it was against, but um, I remember seeing the highlights on on Meridian tonight, uh, which is the for, it's the ITV um, uh, uh, sort of uh, local news show for, mm. for the southeast. Um, of course, Reading, Portsmouth, Southampton, they're all in the same um, the same sort of region. Um, and uh, he just gets the ball, and the next thing you know, he's just collapsed, and you've got um, your central defenders uh, just sort of stood there. What the hell's just happened? Yeah. And then quickly running over to him. Um, but uh, yeah, not a very, um, very, very pleasant uh, scenario. Um, no. And a very sad story. Absolutely. So. But I think the positive to come out of it is the awareness of knowing how to perform CPR. You know, we talk about Ericsson and and. Is it care the the Danish captain was straight in there, you know, removed his tongue from his throat and made sure his airways were clear, waiting for the you know the medics to come over and give him CPR. They knew what to do in an emergency. They didn't freeze. They didn't panic. And I think those vital minutes could potentially have saved his life at the end of the day. If that was more widely known back in two thousand and one, would Flahaven still be around? Who knows? He probably wouldn't be playing football, but. He might still be around, you know, that's the hardest part. But you have to give credit to his brother, um, Daryl. Daryl came to the club as well. I think he was a yep. few few years older than Aaron. Um, just pre coincidence, we wanted to sign a goalkeeper and Daryl was around. And credit where it's due, he put in, you know, a good shift at the shorts that he was with us. And, you know, I think he did his brother proud, really. He didn't really finish the job that he started, but certainly represented the Flahaven name in, in a positive light. You know, I think that was quite a, a touching moment, really, when he when he played for us. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, move, moving on then. Um, so, Portsmouth now. Mm. Um, clearly, you're, you've recovered from the, the financial issues that the club 
has uh, has has well, notoriously suffered um, to an extent, um, and you're attempting to make your way back up the leagues, but can't quite um, find that extra little bit of quality and consistency to get yourself back into into the, the playoff or automatics at League One level just to mm. get back into the championship. Um, just what what's it been like watching them over the last couple of seasons, and what are your thoughts going on into the new season? It's a bit of a strange one because my dad always says to me, when it comes to Portsmouth, buckle up because it's a roller coaster ride. And it mm-hmm. could be a roller coaster ride from dropping from the Premier League to League Two in four seasons. It could be a roller coaster ride during one season. It doesn't really matter what happens. It always seems to be the hard way of doing things. And I think the last four years, the four years is harsh, the last three years have really summed that up. The first sort of season we had a chance was our second season in League One under Kenny Jacket. And at Christmas, we were top. We had a really strong foundation in the squad. Come January, we had a few fitness issues, issues with suspensions, players potentially leaving. And we didn't recruit well. And everybody around us recruited really, really well. And we spent a lot of time umming and ahhing, who do we retain as you know for contracts and stuff like that? Because as you know, when the contracts have got six months left, they can start doing pre-contract deals with other football clubs. Mm-hmm. Yep. And these players were you know a bit in limbo. They didn't know whether they were going to be staying here beyond the season come January time or you know whether they were going to be moved on. And that didn't really help. And we free fell from, I think it was first, we were something like eight or nine points clear at Christmas to dropping just into the playoffs. And I think we finished fourth that season, played Sunderland, lost to Sunderland. Sunderland went to the playoffs, lost, and, and we played them again the following season. Um, the season after was very similar. And again, you know, we didn't really learn the lessons of the following January, or the previous January, sorry. And the players came round to Christmas time. I think we were second or third. We were knocking on the door for the automatic promotion places at least. And we recruited really poorly. And we free fell again. And luckily, we scraped the playoffs because the season was ended prematurely. Um, on points of the game, we, we made it into the playoffs. If mm-hmm. the season had been played out, I'm not convinced we would have got playoffs that year because we had to play Ipswich, we had to play Sunderland, we had to play Oxford, all really six-pointers. And if we'd have lost two of those, we probably wouldn't have made the playoffs. And we made the playoffs on a win really um, yeah. a bit of a cop out. We did want to play the season out, which, you know, I give full credit to the CEO at the time, Mark Catlin and the board for sort of making a stand and saying, we want to play the season out, even just for integrity. Um, but ultimately the rest of the division didn't have an awful lot to play for. So the season got curtailed on, on the majority. But mm. again, we had a very long break. We played Oxford in the playoffs and we lost on penalties in the final leg. But, we weren't convincing. There was a lot of strange selection choices, claiming that our captain at the time wasn't selected because he was a winter player and not a summer player, playing a player who hadn't played for the best part of 18 months due to a very long injury. We'll start him in a playoff semi-final for his first game in 18 months, dropping your your number one goalkeeper for a 21-year-old who didn't really have the best command of his box. And that's the reason why we conceded two goals over the two legs. A lot of strange decisions. And for me at that point then, and I think a lot of people, that was the point where we should have said, right, time to get rid of the manager, time for something fresh and a lot of new ideas. And the reasoning the club gave gave for not making that decision to 
switch at the time was due to COVID and the financial situation and the losses that the club were making, which as a club who relies on the solid fan base that we have, the majority of income is made up by people coming through the turnstiles every week. If you don't have that, then your income is practically nil. Um, and so that was our problem. Going into the following season, so the season that's just gone, um, we, again, we did all the good things up till Christmas time. We beat the big teams. We went to Sunderland. We beat Sunderland. We went to Hull. We beat Hull. Um, and we were we were knocking out really good results. And everyone sort of stood up and went, hang on a minute, we might actually do something this season. Again, January time comes round. We didn't learn the lessons again and the wheels fell off. And it was at the point then where we had the rescheduled leasing.com trophy, I think it was called then, um, from the previous season that was called off due to COVID, played this season. And mm-hmm. we ended up losing to Salford in, in, quite honestly, a very gutless display. Um, I don't think many Pompey fans will kind of disagree with that. It was absolutely gutless. The only person that kept us in that game was the goalkeeper, Craig McGillivray. And, you know, he pulled off some fantastic saves. Um we had nothing going forward. There was no cohesion. The team selection was all a bit confusing. And for a team like Salford, and I won't, you know, I won't disrespect Salford in a way because they have worked their way up the league. Some people might not agree with how they've done it, but they've done it. Um, and they played us off the park that day and they beat us on penalties again. Uh, they deserve to win that trophy. And I will give them credit for winning that. Um, and that was the turning point, really. That's when Jacket got sacked the following Tuesday, I think it was. The game was on mm-hmm. Saturday. Um, obviously, I had a meeting on the Monday, called it quits on the Tuesday. And that really was kind of a decision that perhaps should have been made nine months earlier because the replacements that came in, in you know, Danny and Nikki Cowley, who are fully back and think, you know, if they're given the time, they will do fantastic things. They were also available in the summer. And it kind of makes you wonder, they had a fantastic run first three, four games in. Mm-hmm. If they'd have had the summer recruitment that Jacket had had and then had the January recruitment that he'd been given, would the outcome of the season been different? I, I can't help but think it would have been. And the, the, you know, the most frustrating problem is they were sort of staring at us in the face. They were available from, from day one when we got knocked out of the, the playoffs again. Um but yeah, so that that's kind of the last three seasons, really. It's just, you know, the complete inability to build momentum and hold on to what you've got in terms of first, second, even third place in the division, three seasons in a row. It, it's really frustrating um, yeah. to the point where, you know, last season we dropped out the playoffs and on the last day we didn't make it. And that really wasn't surprising. I think a lot of people were a little bit annoyed, a bit upset, understandably. Your target has to be the playoffs, but... Ultimately, when you look back and you think, were we good enough to get the playoffs that season over the likes of Oxford, Lincoln, um, Sunderland? No, we weren't. We weren't good enough to get the playoffs last season. And I will openly admit that Um, too many players perhaps didn't want it. A lot of those have now been moved on. Um, Again, despite the odd grumble from people on Twitter and the normal, you know, disheartening, oh, that player shouldn't have left because he brings X, Y and Z to the team. But you need to have confidence in the new coaches. They need to bring in the players they want for their project. Similarly to they did at Lincoln. Lincoln is a prime example of what the Cowleys achieved. Um, They got them from basically on their knees in the conference to an established League One club Um, and very nearly got to the championship last season. They were knocking on the door. Um, 
I'd be surprised next season if they don't knock on the door again, Lincoln City. Um, and that's the sort of project, albeit at a higher level, we should be aiming to achieve with them. Yes, absolutely. I, I completely agree. Um, on the on the subject of uh, uh, sort of building their squad, mm. um, you've still got the, um, the, the, the the basis of, uh, of, of the nucleus of your of your team that's done so well. Um, I say so well. Obviously, it's not got where you want them to be, um, but you're still knocking on the door every season at the top end of the season. There's absolutely no question of relegation. Um, so you're looking at, um, like you say, uh, your goalkeeper. Um, mm. uh, uh, is it McGillivray? Yes. Um, your goal scorer, John Marquis. Um, McGillivray's now on Charlton, so we've has, lost McGillivray. Yeah. Right. Okay. I missed that one. Yeah. Um, edit that one out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, he um, he rejected new terms we offered him. He had a year extension option that we didn't take up um, mm-hmm. because it would have meant a pay rise and the club decided against him deserving one, which in some respects, if he didn't get playoffs, that was your target. You don't deserve a pay rise. If I did half a job at work, I wouldn't get a pay rise. Um, again, it's a team effort and he probably felt that he deserved what he was on and Charlton were prepared to offer it to him. He hasn't got to relocate too far, so I don't begrudge him for it at all. So, Talk to me about the very beginning then. Um, I don't know too much about it. I haven't spoken too much outside of uh, this recording, but I'm presuming you're, uh, you're a Hampshire lad um, or yes. maybe even a property lad um, from the actual city itself. Uh, yeah, so born probably 200 yards from Fratton Park. Um, in oh, what nice. Was, there we go. What was St Mary's Hospital? I think it's still St Mary's Hospital, but they don't have the uh, maternity ward there anymore. But yeah, so yeah, but pretty much born in Fratton, so it you know it kind of makes sense to uh, to support the club. My dad's a Pompey fan. His dad was a Pompey fan. If I'm not right, if I'm not wrong in thinking, his dad was a Pompey fan. So it's in the bloodline. Um, it would kind of be silly not to support them. But yeah, don't live in the area anymore. Relocated up towards. Um, Somerset with my partner, but I've still got a season ticket. I still go to pretty much every home game. So, mm. you know, it, it's kind of like commuting to work, but every other weekend, uh, <laughs> you don't really see it as a commute anymore. It's just the, the journey to go to a football match. So, yeah. 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 Kind of similar. My journey's not quite as long, but I, I live sort of 45 miles away from Reading now. So, mm. I know where you're coming from. Um, but uh, so, so presumably it was your dad and your granddad who first started taking it. Yeah, well, I think my granddad took my dad um, initially. And then when he got a bit older and, you know, he didn't really go as much anymore to games, maybe the odd one or two a season until he kind of felt he wasn't really fit enough to go anymore. And, you know, decided to just stay at home and listen to it on the radio, which I, I fully understand at that point. You don't really want to be going out and trekking across the city every weekend. And then, yeah, my dad took me to games... My first one was, if I'm not wrong, not wrong, probably Gillingham at home in a cup game in 2002 or 2003. Mm-hmm. I'd have been about seven, six or seven years old at that point. So, yeah. Um, and he was a steward at the time. So he was okay. at every game, Saturday or Tuesday, cup games, you name it, up until, oh, for a while, from probably late 90s, early 2000s, till about 2003 when we won promotions of the Premier League. Yeah, um, yeah. So if there was a game that he could get me to, then he would get me to it. It was kind of a case of on an as and when basis, you know, um, depending on where he was stewarding as well. So yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, there was kind of a bit sporadic for the first couple of years, but up until he then quit the stewarding, it became a bit more of a regular thing. Probably 
the 2004-2005 season, sort of the first or second season in the Premier League, when we kind of started, started to establish ourselves. And that yeah. was kind of the, the glory days, really. That's what I grew up with, which, yeah. you know, I don't really wish on any fan because it just gets worse from there. Yeah, so I started under Harry, um, Harry Redknapp. Yeah. Um, and then I'm trying to think now, four or five season. Was that the season that you had Reggie Perrin in charge, Alain Perrin, or was that, uh, was that the season after? So it would have been, uh, there was quite a few. It was a bit of a strange one. So Redknapp came in and completely rejuvenated the entire club. Um, and it was a bit of a strange move because I don't think he wanted to be manager when he came in. He came in as sort of like sporting director, director of football yeah. type role. And it was, was only through... in charge when he when he first arrived. I, if I'm, I think he was. I think he was. And then he ended up getting sacked by Milan Mandrik, and Mandrik sort of said to Harry, "Go on, you you step in for a few games towards the end of the season." And um, Harry sort of got the taste for management again, I suppose, after West Ham and and all that kind of stuff, and thought, well, there's maybe a project here and if Milan's prepared to back him, then, you know, he was probably prepared to do it. And yeah. fortunately he did. The stars aligned and we we brought in some fantastic players. I won't lie. Yeah, I look back now and I think, how on earth did we get half the players in that we got under Red Nap, you know, in the first stint? It was just unbelievable. We didn't spend millions of pounds like we did in, you know, the, the late 2000s or whatever it was to, to win an FA Cup and all that. We sort of recruited very sensibly with players of good experience, players that maybe slightly passed it, but still had 20 games in them um, yeah. and just a blend of youngsters. And, and it worked. It worked a treat, you know, the likes of Paul Merson, who even at the age of 35 or 34, whatever he was, still had a fantastic right peg on him, but he couldn't run. But yeah. that's all you needed from Paul Merson in the right system. You had a young Matt, side who would just absolutely run him run himself into the ground um doing all the running for everybody basically um and yeah you know we just built a squad from next to nothing and with the right coach and the right management you know we we did something spectacular with it and that was kind of my first memory was, was winning silverware which again quite unrealistic for a lot of football fans winning silverware in your first memorable season but um yeah, I probably wouldn't wish it on anyone else to win silverware in their first season because don't expect it. <laughs> you don't get it every year. <laughs> no, no, absolutely. So, so um, you started going more regularly. I think your dad was a uh, was a steward. Um, how, how long had he been a steward for? Was he was that something that he just sort of recently taken up and and just to sort of um, sort of, should we say cut the ticketing cost down, or was it something <laughs> that, that he just you know, just thought, yes, yeah, I'll, I'll go and do it, you know. In all honesty, it may have been a bit of both. I think my brother and I were kind of born within two years of each other in the mid-90s. And obviously, once kids come along, football potentially takes a bit of a back seat. Um, but if you earn a bit of money and you can watch football, then I think it's a bit of a no-brainer, really. Yeah. Um, and I think that was probably kind of the uh, the underlying motivation behind it. I wouldn't know for certain because I haven't actually asked him. Um, and if he listens to this back, he'll probably bring me up and go, oh, it was this, it was that. I go, right, okay, that's what it was. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think, you know, just the ability to go out on a Saturday afternoon and watch football and, you know, the bonus of a little paycheck at the end of each week um, was certainly a little bit of motivation for it. But yeah, yeah he, he was the very occasional bit of casual abuse thrown his way in the, in the, uh, in, as, as a, by way of compensation. 
Oh, to be honest, it's probably no worse than he gave when he when he wasn't the steward. So he <laughs> yeah, if I know Portsmouth fans, yeah, they're not they're not shy. <laughs> yeah, he, he's he's sixty now, but he still gives as good as he gets. So yeah, um, it, yeah, he, he probably water off a duck's back at the end of the day. You've got to get used to it. Um, but once once we won promotion in two thousand and three, I, I remember him saying, you know, that was it. You know, I opened the gate and let all the fans on the pitch. And my boss came over to me and said, "Why are you letting them all on the pitch?" He said, "You know what? I don't need this job anymore." Took his jacket off, handed it back around the pitch. I quit. And just that was it. He never stewarded again. Um, <laughs> and then he had enough. to pay for tickets. <laughs> Fair enough. If you're going to go out, go out on a high. <laughs> Absolutely. And do you know what? I don't think he was the only one to do that. I watched back at um, the celebration videos from 2003 on, on what looks like they would look like they were filmed on a potato there, that, that grainy. But you can definitely <laughs> see a few blokes in shirts and you think they were probably stewards. They probably packed it in today. Um, either that or they're going to be dragged into the office in the morning and <laughs> given their P45. So, yeah, yeah it's... Um, yeah, it, it was it was a fantastic time. I think you know people just you have to live in the moment when that happens. And I think I'm I'm a bit disappointed I wasn't a bit older to kind of appreciate it more. Um, now I look back and you know I've got the books. You do the reading and you speak to people who were a bit older at the time and and were there, and you can appreciate how much it meant. You know, looking back at it, because we spent an awful long time dwindling at the bottom of. What, what is now the championship we spent probably four or five years dwindling around the bottom um just staying up on the last game or you know rely on someone else to lose so we stayed up and, and all that kind of stuff and in a season for it to change on its head I think we were 250 to one to get promoted that season and we won it on 99 points yeah that's no mean feat for anyone in any season um so you have to take your hat off and say you know it's well deserved. Full respect to to Red Nap, despite what people may think of him. That was probably bar an FA Cup win, the best season he had with us was just the complete unexpected promotion to the Premier League and then establishing ourselves in that division from there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean I remember um, remember that season. We it was our first season back in that at that level mm. um for four years. Um and you had the likes of Shaka Hislop in goal, um, who yeah. was much loved in Reading. Um, you had um, uh, Nimboy Primus at the back. Uh, again, much, much, loved, much loved in Reading. Um, yeah. There's a Svetoslav Todorov, Vincent Perikard. Steve Pericard. Stone, Perikard. Yeah, there was a... Just you a, had a very, very strong side. So yeah. looking at it from, from, from the outside, or 60 miles north as I was then, <laughs> um, it didn't come as any surprise that you were knocking at the top end of the division with a with a, with a Premier League manager as well um, yes. at the helm. So, and of course, it was, it was you and Leicester who were the two standout teams. Sheffield United gave it a good go um, uh, towards the back end under Neil Warner, mm. but uh, they weren't quite strong enough. Um, no. Uh, um, but yeah, so your first real memories of following Pompey then are all in the mm. Premier League, pretty much. Um, they and, are. And being the glory a, era. Other than 05, 06, uh, or sorry, the, 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 the sort of two thirds of 05, 06, mm. um, competing at a very, very strong level, mid table, upper mid table. Um, yes. and, and until it all kind of unraveled when Redknapp left for the second time. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily place it all on Redknapp. I think it's an awful lot more that happened behind the scenes. Um, the difficulty was that when Mandrick sold up, 
we didn't really have anything like the fit and proper persons test that we do now. I won't say that the fit and proper persons test at the moment is perfect. It is anything but. But there is something in place now to check people buying football clubs. It's not just a case of just buying the entity of a, a business and going, yeah, I, I can pay this much now and I own it, um, which it was when we were sold. The difficulty was who we were sold to. And I think a lot of people are portion blame to Redknapp for building the squad and being told he could have this money to spend. And when the metaphorical feces hit the fan, um, he left. But it doesn't really pan out that way that people kind of remember it was reported. What necessarily happened was the club found themselves in a bit of a black hole with money. Redknapp was wanted by Spurs. He was wanted by them a year previously. And we said, no, um, they came in and said, we'll pay you £5 million to buy, buy his contract out. And we took it because five million quid would have kept the club running for a month. Mm-hmm. And that was the true story behind it. We then ended up promoting um, from within. We promoted Tony Adams to caretaker yeah. manager. And, you know, Tony Adams is absolutely bonkers. Um, and... <laughs> You know, from there, the the spiral kind of started and the owner decided that, well, the owner's sort of revenue stream dried up. He decided he wanted to sell and we sold to um, a chap called Ali Al Fahim um, Mm -hmm. from Saudi Arabia. who claimed he had lots of money. It only transpired maybe a year or two ago that the money he had was actually his wife's money. It wasn't his money. And he bought the football club with his wife's money, who he'd now divorced from and she was suing him for that money back. Um, And again, if all this was checked, none of it would have happened. About six months later, it was sold to a, um, a person called Ali Al-Faraj. Um, he was called Al-Miraj because no one ever saw him. No passports or anything like that was ever ever produced to prove this man existed, apart from a photograph of someone claiming they were him. Um, <laughs> and that didn't pan out too well either. And at this point, the club's kind of been siphoned off into chunks. You know, the land around the football club is owned by four or five different people who have since sold the club but kept that bit of land and so on and so forth. So every time the club is sold, a little bit of it is retained by the previous owner or is sold separately as part of the deal. And it kind of felt like the heart of the club was being ripped to bits each time the club was sold. And... Yeah, that was kind of the, the 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 gist of it, really. We got bought by someone else, um, a Russian-Lithuanian business pair, ultimately got sent to prison for um, fraud from a bank in Lithuania. <laughs> and then we were reluctantly owned by one of their creditors in a chap called Balram Chamrai, who mm-hmm. bled the club dry for about two years. Um then we'll go into more detail about how bad it really was but yeah that was the point where the fans had to step in but going back to your point none of it really was Redknapp's fault I really can't do an awful lot in terms of blaming him but you know he gave us the best times in the modern era that we can remember and you know in some ways he has to be respected for that and there will still be fans who hate him and blame him for a lot of what happened but let's be honest, he's not clever enough to know how much money was in the bank and how much um, was being spent on players and agents and all the rest of it. You know, the man claimed he couldn't read or write, so how is he going to know how much money is being spent? Um, so, yeah, it's it's a tough one, but I don't pin much, if any, of the blame on him in, on him in, in that respect. No, absolutely. 
So talk to me about some of your memories then, um, early <laughs> early on. So there's, there's a couple early on. We've obviously spoken about the promotion season to the Premier League. That's probably the earliest memory. Um, there's a few sort of scattered memories. The next one that really comes up was the 2005-06 Great Escape season. Mm-hmm. That was probably, bar the 2007-08 season, the best season of the Premier League we'd had in terms of excitement in the last three months of a season. Um, we went through a period, and we were, quite convenient, we are discussing Redknapp at the moment, where he'd left, he'd gone to Southampton, the tail end of the previous season, he ended up relegating them, which was fantastic. He was even more of a hero. <laughs> um, we went through managers like there was no tomorrow, trying to find someone who would fit. And no one seemed to do so but Harry. And so Harry and Milan Mandrick made up, kissed and hugged or whatever, and Harry came back. And a lot of people were a bit like, oh, I don't know if this is going to work. And in all honesty, if he'd have relegated us, he would have been hated forever. Yeah. Um, that's the honest truth. We galvanised what was a very poor squad, a very, very poor squad. You know, even Pompey fans now joke about some of the players that we had in that team. They were nowhere near good enough, but they were hired by two or three different managers over a two year, over a, a two transfer windows. Mm-hmm. Um, they weren't good enough at all. A red nut came in, in in January and said, I want to sign him, him, him on loan. He's a free transfer. I can get next, I can get him for next to nothing. And we signed players like Pedro Mendes, Sean Davis, um, mm-hmm. um, Andres D'Alessandro. And that really was kind of the nucleus of the team that we needed. They were the positions, you know, in central midfield and sort of that, that number 10 role that we were lacking in terms of creativity. And it worked. You know, that and a little bit of tactical now, and knowing the teams you were playing against because the manager wasn't from France or Romania or wherever. He knew the Premier League. He knew the players. He knew the managers. He knew what he was doing. He knew how to get a result. Yeah, And <clears throat> we suddenly went on this streak of just winning, winning, winning. And I think we were 10 points adrift at the bottom of the league with... I'm trying to think now, maybe seven or eight games to play. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about playing teams like Arsenal, Manchester United, Liverpool. At the time, they were kind of the big three. Um, to get anything from them, even if you were in the top half of the table, was an achievement. And we got a couple of draws. We beat pretty much everyone around us, beat a couple of them sort of flirting in mid-table that didn't really have anything to play for. And suddenly, we're just a just in the relegation relegation spots for 18th with a point in point behind 17th with a game at Wigan. And if we won that game and the teams below us lost, we were up with the game in hand and we beat them. We beat them. Was it 1-0? Benjani's first goal? 2-0. 2 Benjani scored his first goal. I think it was around about the 60th minute. And then Matt Taylor scored a penalty in about the 75th. Wasn't yep. they weren't they weren't too far far apart. But I remember Matt Taylor, and I wasn't at the game, but I remember watching it all on match of the day. And I remember being in the car listening to the, the radio at, when the game was on. And I just remember my dad pulling over when the penalty was being taken. Because mm. if that went in, it was game over and we'd won the game. And I just remember yeah. pulling over and just let out this roar of just yes when the penalty went in. That was it. We were up. You know, we played Liverpool the following weekend and we had nothing to play for. And they beat us, I think, 3 0 in the end, which is a good job we did beat Wigan because we would have been down. Yeah. Um, 
and then we went, we rushed home, you know, we listened to all the post-match, which we never really used to do. We watched all the highlights on Match of the Day. We waited till the very last game of Match of the Day, as we always were, watched it. And I just remember Matt Taylor running the whole length of the pitch to get to the away end where the Pompey fans were just going absolutely mental. Um, and it was just surreal. And that was my fun, sort of first moment I thought, Okay, this is what football's about. It's about having a really low six months and about having a really high nine, really high three months. Mm-hmm. Um, and then those sort of really high three months just sort of continued into the next season, and then the next season, and then the next season. Um, and you know, a lot of that credit has to come down to Redknapp firstly keeping us up, and secondly being again given the opportunity to build a squad with his own players and his own mantra, really. Yeah, absolutely. I'm just thinking about that that running. Um, mm. It all stemmed from um, a pretty well, a very late turnaround against Manchester City, wasn't it? Because I, I think it was it was like a, a middle of March game. Um, Red Dapp was struggling Mendes. at this point, wasn't he? Yeah, Pedro Mendes City. scored two goals from 30 yards out. Yeah, funnily enough, against David James. <laughs> yeah. Uh, against the Fratton end, and that was yeah, that was the big turning point. Really, I remember Mendes running towards the frat and then ripping his shirt off when he scored the second goal. And that was kind of when the light came back up in the eyes of all the fans and we kind of thought, can we actually do it? Can we do it? Can we stay up against all the odds? Everyone had written us off. I think the bookies were something like one to a hundred on for us to get relegated, something stupid. Mm-hmm. And we did it. With the last, with a game to spare, we did it, you know, and... My dad referred back to that season as, you know, what he was used to before we got to the Premier League of staying up with a game to go and staying up on the final weekend or or whatever, you know. And he was just like, this is what it's actually about. This is what we do. We stay up on the last day, be it in the Premier League, the Championship, League One, you know, League Two. It's what it's all about. It's just, you know, surviving half the time. So when you do get the high moments, enjoy them because the majority of the time you will end up fighting to stay where you are. So you mentioned say 0506 was was one of the most exciting um what should we call it quarter seasons. Yes. Uh, and you mentioned sort of 0607 was a was a strong season. I remember seeing you play twice and Yeah, um, we we finished just outside beat us the, at Fratton Park. Yeah, well we finished just outside the European places by to Arsenal. I think it was by a point or goal difference, something so insignificant. And I think everyone was kind of a bit like we were so close. It was kind of like a reverse of what Sheffield United had done the last two seasons. Got so close to Europe, just dipped out and ended up getting relegated. Or we'd done the opposite. And it was that sort of momentum from the previous season rolled into the following season. And we just kind of kept winning games against teams that we kind of thought were our bogey teams, our banana yeah. skins. We'd always lose to um, Blackburn Rovers. We'd always lose to them. We beat them, two t- we beat them twice that season. We thought, oh, OK, maybe they're not our bogey team anymore. And, and that was kind of the role of results that we went on. And again, that followed into the previous season and into the following season, sorry. And, and I have to bring it up, but the memorable <laughs> game from, from that season was beating yourselves at Reading 7-4, you know. Yeah. yeah I'll say the name Ben Jarney, it'll give you nightmares. Um, yeah. yeah, it does. <laughs> <laughs> I went as sort of a birthday present at the time with a, a school friend and, and his dad and we were sat, I don't know if you've been to Fratton Park and remember. Plenty of times. Yeah, I don't remember too much, but the north and the south stand, so the stand sort of either side of the, the pitch. Yeah. The first tier or two, the first sort of row or two are pretty much eye level with the pitch. And I remember we were in the very front row of the north stand 
And I was probably, uh, how old was I at the time? 12, 13 years old. And I was kind of like getting into the excitement of football. I was like, oh, this is really good. And you know, we scored loads of goals. And, and I'm just sort of eye level with all the ankles of the players. And I'm having to sort of stand on the seat to see everything. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I saw every single goal go in and, and there was enough of them to see. But, you know, I remember seeing James run off his line. Um, was it was it Noel Hunt that was through or Hunt that was no. through at the time or Kitson? Dave Kitson. Dave Kitson was through on goal, you know, rounded David James, he'd rushed off his line to 40 yards out and everyone went, what the hell have you done? Yeah, and we've been <laughs> and it, battered up until that point, absolutely yes. battered and got it that point back to all. Yeah, yeah, and, and you know, it was such a strange game because at half-time, it, it was, I think we were winning 1-0, was, was it one all just before half-time? 2-1, uh, you were winning. 2-1, yeah. Benjani had scored twice and, it, and yeah, uh, I it think just, Liam Rossini scored for us. That was it. And it just seemed like a very boring game. And you thought, oh, it's 2-1. Two, two, <laughs> For you, be... boring. Well, <laughs> <laughs> For us, it was horrific. We were, well, we were absolutely yeah. abhorrent all game. Yeah. But, yeah, you think, no, it's 2-1. If there's no more goals now, we've won the game. I'm pretty happy. And then the second half just exploded into something. Just It was just chaos. There's no other word for it, but just orchestrated football chaos. Yeah. Um, and it was fantastic, you know, even as... If you was a neutral watching that, you'd be going, I've got my money's worth today. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> but being a fan of either team, it was it was always sort of on a knife edge, you know, we'll get a goal and, and then we'll get another goal, but then you'll get a goal back. And and we were kind of like hammer and tong at each other for the whole 90 minutes. And I just remember seeing the players trudge off the pitch and they were just exhausted after yeah. that. Yeah. You know, there was literally there was nothing left in any of the players after that. And I just remember watching um, Glenn Johnson run down the right-hand side in the second half. We were shooting towards the Fratton end. And I just remember he, he sort of came to take a throw in. The ball was sort of a few rows behind me. Someone threw the ball over. And I could just see him puffing. And it was about the 65th minute. <laughs> and you knew he'd run that touchline probably 20, 25, 30 times in an hour. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> a... a, a, a Bloke like Glenn Johnson at the time, he was probably the fittest he ever been. He was an England international, arguably probably the rest, best right back in England at the time. Um, <laughs> he was run ragged by you know the the left wing of Reading. He kind of thought that's the sort of game that you want to be at, and you know it's one of those that always sticks in the memory to the point where well, I think we even made a DVD of it at the time, and now it'd be absolutely slaughtered on Twitter. But yeah, well, I think we made a DVD of it, the seven four yeah. win. There's a couple of uh, couple of clubs who have made DVDs after victories <laughs> against us. Bristol Rovers did exactly the same after their six 0 at the Medeski. Did Arsenal um, do one as well when you lost to them? Oh God, yeah, the seven five League <laughs> Cup tie. Yeah, do you know? And even you know, we're talking about the oh seven oh eight season. I, I, I'll get into my memories about that specific mm. game in, in a second. Um, but we scored four goals in an away game three times that season. We won one of them because um, we played we played Spurs at White Hart Lane uh, around Christmas time. I think it was the, I think it was twenty eighth of December, something like that. Anyway, yeah. Um, and it was it was another classic game. Dimitar Berbatov scored four against us. What a player, um, though! What a player! Yeah, absolutely. He uh, yeah he ran us ragged. Um, yeah. We led that game three times and lost six four. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so and we, we we ended up scoring four against Derby on the last day of the season, and day we were relegated, um, because uh, because bloody Fulham beat you on the last day of the season at Fratton Park. Um, score, uh, yeah. if, if you score four goals and don't win, then you're a little bit peeved, aren't you? Uh, um, a little bit, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> just, just no, a little my, bit. my 
my uh, my memories of that particular day. I mean, it's a Premier League record. All, you know, seven four. There's eleven goals in the game. We've not seen it before or since. No, we um, haven't. And you know, we, so we went that we went well two 0 down fairly early on. I think it was mm. after about half an hour. Benjani had just. I mean, Portsmouth just. Fratton Park is a graveyard ground for us. We hadn't. I, we don't think we'd only ever won there um, twice in our history. Mm. And Portsmouth and Reading have, have played each other fairly often, but Portsmouth are one of our bogey clubs. Um, and so we've gone two 0 down fairly early on, um, and we've managed to get one back right on half time out of absolutely nowhere. We thought, well, we've got ourselves a chance here. And then David James doing David James things. He did have a mistake <laughs> in him, didn't he? Um, as you say, Dave Kitson spanked it in from, and it was an angle as well. It wasn't centre a goal. It was no, a great finish. It was on the wing, basically, um, at the time. Yeah, touchline. Yeah. Um, and we thought, oh, uh, we got we got a chance here. Mm. Um, and then, um, yeah, Marcus Hanneman decided to do a Superman trick. And um, yeah. I think it was uh, Herman Friderson. Friderson, yeah. Friderson scored, um, Franchar scored, Benjani got a hat trick, and then there was a deflected goal. Sean Davis. Um, from Sean Davis, yeah, I think. Yeah, Ivar Ingemarsson's head. Ingemarsson, that's it was. Bald guy, remember the yeah. bald guy? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, when it was, let's say, after Friderson has scored that, two minutes later, we get a penalty. Nicky Shorey, <laughs> it's, it's missed. So, yeah. Um, that would have brought it three three. Different game, obviously. But, yeah. Um, then we yeah, scored getting... again, and that was that was a point where I think the Reading head dropped, and then you scored again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was. Horrible, horrible day yeah. for us. Yeah. Um, I say so I, I was there. Um, I was at the back of the Milton end. Um, <laughs> it was quite nice to have a roof over us that, that season, though. Um, that was the first uh, season the roof end. went up. That was the first yeah. season the roof went up. Yeah, it's still there. <laughs> don't know how, but it's still there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it was quite quite nice to have the roof there, which was, mm. as I say, it was a, made a nice change going to Fratton Park and having a roof over your head. Yes. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I'd seen us win at Fratton Park once uh, up to that point in 90, uh, 97. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's generally a terrible ground for us to go to. And, uh, and because mm. I don't know, I, I, I like it because as you well know, um, noise comes at you from three sides, you know, yes. everybody's, everybody's of the same mindset, same mentality mm. at Portsmouth. Um, I think that's one I hate of the it because that, we always fricking lose. I think that's one of the things that people love though, isn't it? I think, especially being a Pompey fan, you, you've, I, I especially feel kind of a bit privileged that I get to go and I get to sit sit in a rusty old stadium that's made of wood and concrete and a tin roof and I haven't got a luxury padded seat and you know I haven't got a radiator or any heating near me or anything like that it's cold in the winter it's Baltic in the winter and in the summer it is, it is boiling but the noise is just second to none absolutely mm-hmm. second to none I'll refer back to um, two seasons ago and we had to play the that lot in red and white down the road. Um, mm, yeah. And they beat us. They, they beat us 4-0 convincingly. I fully expected that they're an established Premier League club now um, and we are lingering in the third division. Um, I fully expect them to beat us. But the one thing I knew that wouldn't happen was the fans would turn on the players. I knew they wouldn't do it. And the the noise, every single time we conceded a goal, the noise got louder and louder and louder. And I remember the day after, I, it was a Tuesday night game. And, and you know, normally I wouldn't do a Tuesday night game um, just because of the travelling and, and getting to and from getting home stupid rock at night from a home game just seems silly. Um, I slept on my dad's couch that night and <laughs> woke up about 5am, got on the early train to work and I had nothing. I had no voice, absolutely mm-hmm. nothing left. And that's normal after a game of football. You're a little bit hoarse if you've been shouting and, and whatnot. Yeah. Um, 
but there was nothing. Nothing was coming out. And you know, my partner Leah met me at the train station afterwards, and I think we got a coffee or something together. And I couldn't speak to her. <laughs> she was just <laughs> laughing at me. There was nothing coming out. And I think that just kind of typifies what Fratton Park is like. It, it's referred to as a bear pit. There's yeah. there's a nice little um, montage that goes around on the big screen at home games beforehand, just to kind of g the crowd up a little bit. And when it was first released, it was mind-blowing, really, that they put it together, and it was fantastic. And it goes through some of the quotes from from famous people in football who refer to the atmosphere at Fratton Park. And you've obviously got Jose Mourinho saying, you know, there's no better atmosphere than Fratton Park in England. You've even got Raudinho going, the best atmosphere in world football. And these are from people who have been everywhere and seen everything. And I think for a little club on the seaside, that's that's quite a big achievement, really. Yeah. Of course, that uh, you mentioned Ronaldinho there. Uh, yeah. That's the 08-09 season, isn't it? When, when yes. AC Milan came to town. Yeah. Um, go on, regale us. <laughs> well, I did have it in my, my um, what was it, my favourite game. Um, but I'll go through it now in, in a little bit more detail. But... Yeah, it's when AC Milan come to town, it's not anything you can really sort of skimp on. You have to sort of pull out all the bells and whistles and, and respect them. You know, they had a team, I think, of six Ballon d'Or winners at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and that nowadays is just unheard of. You know, Messi and Ronaldo got six each. Um, to have six individual Ballon d'Or winners in one squad was just phenomenal. The likes of Pirlo, Ronaldinho, um, in Zaggy, um, I think Shevchenko was there, Kaka, um, you know, you're looking at a world-class team who I think the season before or the season before that were in the Champions League final, not too yep. dissimilar team either. Um, <clears throat> you have to give them full respect. And I think, again, on a special day like that, the noise level is just phenomenal. I remember going to going to school the next day and, and my ears were ringing for about 48 hours afterwards and the noise levels it felt like the stadium was moving that's how loud it was and I remember I was sat in the fraten end towards the back and I could feel the back of the stand almost as if it was peeling away from the concrete where the seats were and the mm. noise was that that loud and the vibrations were that strong that it always felt like the roof was physically going to come off um, and then we scored two goals and we were winning 2-0 and he just thought, it can't get any louder, can it? it like, this, <laughs> this is as loud as it gets. Um, and it's just one of those memories that even now, when it comes up on on the timeline or on Twitter or anything like that, I have to just stop and watch it because you'll never get a moment like that where you can say we played the European champions at home and, and you know with six Ballon d'Or winners, several World Cup winners in that squad. This was a team of players that people look back at now as individuals and go, they are what they were or they are world-class players. And mm-hmm. they will forever be etched into the memory of football. And they've played on the little hallowed turf at Fratton Park. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I remember... And, and it was... was it, they, they brought on two subs towards the, back, towards the end of the game, didn't they? With sort of 15 minutes or so to go. Yeah, and they brought on... Up. It brought on Ronaldinho and Filippo and Zaghi, which I'm not being funny, it's pretty unfair <laughs> when you can bring those two on, isn't it? And we've got Glenn Little and um, Herman Arrayson to bring on. Oh, I won't. Don't I won't. Blakey. I won't. <laughs> um, but, you know, when we, we can bring on Glenn Little and Herman Arrayson, they can bring on Filippo and Zaghi and, you know, Ronaldinho. It's not really that fair, is it? But, um, 
you know, I remember Ronaldinho coming up, coming out to warm up, and I remember hearing someone say, "I bet he thinks this is the training ground," and you, everyone around just laughed because. <laughs> We've, we've spoken briefly about the uh, the 08-09 season, um, mm. or particularly the 08-09 season. I kind of jumped ahead about um, one of the uh, probably the one of the most significant events in Portsmouth history at the back end of 07-08, um, and of course that is the FA Cup. Um, yes. What's it like to win an FA Cup? <laughs> um, it's a bit indescribable, really. Um, it's it's just everything. Every, everything you've ever wanted for every Christmas combined into one little bit of silverware. And I think every club should have the opportunity to win an FA Cup. I know you've got to earn it and everything else, but to get that far and, and the way we did it that season was just fate in some way. You know, our name was kind of on the trophy from the minute we beat Manchester United and Chelsea got knocked <laughs> out. Yes. And then we, su- <laughs> we suddenly went from sort of out, you know, rank outsider to hot favourite and it was kind of like oh this is a bit different and it, it, in some way it's kind of a bit like what we're seeing with the Euros at the moment it's kind of like well if we can beat the next team who on paper we should be able to beat we're in a final and then if we can beat them we'd won a trophy and it's just it's just a fantastic feeling and I think the 2007-8 FA Cup win will forever live in the memory of Pompey fans there are Mem- there are commemorative shirts, flags, scarves. You know, there were all sorts made to commemorate that FA Cup win. I think it will never, ever be forgotten. And I think a lot of football fans who perhaps follow maybe a big club, right, Liverpool, Arsenal, Chelsea, Man City, etc., they forget that we won the FA Cup in 2008. They, you know, I was, I was in a pub a few weeks ago and, and I was chatting away watching the football to a group of people and they sort of went, how do you remember that date? How do you remember that date? How do you remember who scored that goal? And they said, you're a bit of a football encyclopedia, aren't you? Mm. And they said, okay, then who won the FA Cup in 2008? I said, Portsmouth. They went, no, they didn't. It was Manchester United. I said, that's Portsmouth. So how do you know that? I said, my Pompey fan. I was there. <laughs> and it, it's it's kind of like having that bragging right. And a lot, of people, a lot of people forget. And I think we were never expected to win anything, really. You know, we were in the Premier League on merit. And we've done reasonably well. To then top that off with a bit of silverware, I think, is kind of the icing on the cake. And I, I sort of I compare it akin to a, a Leicester City at the moment. Oh, they went one further and they won, won the Premier League a few years ago. But to do what they've done, come up from League One, build their way up to the Championship, build their way up to the Premier League, stay up, build themselves, establish themselves, get themselves into European places, and then to win a trophy on top... It's the icing on the cake. You can't ask for much more than that. And I hope for their sake that it doesn't go the way it went for us shortly afterwards. And I don't think it will do. They've got a fantastic um, owner there now. And, you know, the family as a whole at Leicester City are just fantastic. I think everybody in football appreciates that. Yeah. But that's kind of what I compare it to. But <laughs> winning it is just, it's just, it's indescribable, to be honest with you. It's one of those feelings that, you'll forever look back on, you'll forever remember the faces you saw when the trophy was lifted and you'll always remember the roar when, you know, Campbell lifted that trophy at, at Wembley Stadium and it was handed to him by Bobby Robson, who, you know, no longer with us, but mm-hmm. 
the, the greats in football were kind of like the, the football gods were smiling on us that day and and you know everything kind of panned out and the whole FA Cup run itself wasn't really that pretty it wasn't that exciting we won every game by a goal yeah. um there was one point away at Preston we almost got knocked out um if it wasn't for a last minute goal there was Ipswich again we scored in the last minute of the game to win 2-1 we could have been knocked out so many times along the way and we weren't convincing. So when we drew Manchester United in the quarterfinal, we kind of thought, oh, that's it then. It's over. You know, we got to the quarterfinal. Happy with that. We're, we're probably finishing a European place this season. If we get knocked out, we'll just focus on that. Not, not, not that much of a big deal. To then go to Old Trafford and beat Manchester United in the way we beat them, we didn't deserve anything from that game again. They had the likes of Tevez, Ronaldo, Rooney, Giggs, absolutely running the show. Mm-hmm. And... <laughs> for the life of I remember, us, I, I remember watching it, and they, yeah. they had they had pretty much full strength eleven out, didn't they? Um, they did. I, think I can't they... think for the life of me how they didn't score. No, likewise, <laughs> absolutely everything but score, didn't they? Yeah, um, there was there was a time where Campbell sprinted back from what felt like the halfway line and cleared the ball from the from the line. There was Glenn Johnson headed it off the line. David James running out of his box and clawing the ball away from feet, and you just think. If we win this game, this might be our chance. Yeah. And then you have the Barros dive slash foul. I'll call it a dive because it was a dive. Um, it certainly would be given by VAR now. And Thomas Kushak got sent off. They didn't have a gun, another goalie on the bench because they'd subbed him on for Van Bissar. Rio Ferdinand went in goal. Silly Mentari stepped up and put it past him. And we saw the game out. We had probably 15 minutes left to play and we just mm-hmm. saw it out. Um, but yeah, so that uh, that FA Cup win, obviously you still sing about it as well, don't you? When Seoul went up to lift the FA Cup. Yeah, not not so much anymore. It's more, <laughs> it, it only generally gets sung if we play in the FA Cup um, and we're lucky enough to play against Cardiff because <laughs> it, 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 <laughs> it, it winds them up. I mean, yep. we, went, we went to Cardiff in a League Cup first round game probably four, three, four years ago now. It will be four years ago now. Yeah. And we, we pretty much sang that song and maybe two others for the whole 90 minutes and then yeah. extra time. Um, and afterwards, we, we did the obligatory McDonald's. Um, other fast food takeaways are available. Um, <laughs> but we went yeah. in there and we were all in our Pompey shirts and whatnot and some Cardiff City fans came over and said, Still can't believe you sing that song. I said, "Well, we've got a trophy to show for it." Why? Yeah, absolutely. And I think you know the argument one of my one of my pals made was that if you'd have won that, you'd be singing it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I it's it swings around abouts, but yeah, it's um <laughs> it's always a good fun song to sing, but it, it brings back some good memories. But then we have to kind of remember what followed afterwards, and then we think, yeah, okay, that probably wasn't quite worth it. Yeah, and. I say that's pretty much the, uh, the, the the season after 08-09. It, it, yeah, it, it wasn't long after the um, after Redknapp left though that, uh, that you know the, the issues really started to to come to light. You started getting the reports in the national newspapers. Um, players were being sold because uh, obviously you had Jermaine Defoe, Peter Crouch, mm. um, Nico Crancia, you know, all following um, Redknapp back to Spurs, yeah, um, etc. Amongst other players. Um, and they weren't really being replaced because the money wasn't there, was it? No, I think the biggest question that surrounded a lot of that was 
when we looked at how much debt that was left when the club first went into administration, I believe it was around about 80 to 100 million pounds. And we sold the best part of twice that. We sold Lusana Diara to Real Madrid for 30 million, Glenn Johnson to Liverpool for 30 million. The combined sale of Crouch and the Foe to Spurs was again about 35, 40 million. <laughs> that would have paid it from those sales. And you kind of wondered, did we sell them on the cheap firstly? And secondly, you know, what happened to the money that we, we got for them? Because we paid, the outlay was quite a lot of money for the players. We will openly admit that. That squad, what we paid for them was probably well over £100 million. But yeah. you put that in perspective now, that will buy you one player in the Premier League. Jaden Sancho gone to Man United for, what was it, 76 million quid? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, back when us and, and Reading were in the Premier League, that would build you a squad and more in the Premier League yeah. back in the two, the 2000s. Um, so, you know, in perspective, it was next to nothing in today's money. But at the time, it would have cleared our debts. And even if we did have to play the kids or bring in loanies or freeze or whatever, that would have kept the club ticking and avoided a point deduction, which ultimately relegated us. Um, At the same time, I think the other issue was wages. You had players, the likes of Sol Campbell, David James, who, and we don't know the exact figures, who were potentially knocking on a hundred grand a week. And that's 5.2 million pound a year each. That's yeah. £10 million a year you have to find to pay two players, let alone the rest of the squad, let alone the coaching staff and the tea lady and you know the kit man and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of money to find. And the club itself was never going to make that money organically. And I think once the owner's income dried up, then we were in real trouble because that's what we were relying on. We, the organic income we had probably paid one player's wage for a whole year. Mm-hmm. It was nowhere near enough to pay the squad, keep the stadium up up to scratch, pay for the training ground, pay for the travel, the transport, um, everything that a football club needs to operate. It just wasn't sustainable. Yeah. And we were then relying on someone to come in, clear the decks and, and clear the debt and do exactly that. But it was never, never feasible, never feasible. It was always realistic. We were going to drop out of the Premier League. Was it realistic we were going to drop out the championship? I don't think we needed to drop out the championship. We were punished again for having the fit and proper persons test fail us. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, we had another point deduction. We're relegated to League One. And that's when the issues really started to arise. Because that was the period of time when, I think you'll probably agree, when you get to about 16, 17, 18, and you've got a a part-time job and all your money gets spent on going to football games. Um, yeah, because that's the one thing you love doing, and that was me at the time. And I'd seen the highs of the FA Cup win, the AC Milan game, and the promotion to the Premier League, and and surviving in the Premier League for nearly a decade. That's all I knew. And suddenly, you're kind of faced with this do-or-die situation. You know, the club may very well fold if nobody does anything about it. We've got a reluctant owner, was what what the chap called himself, Baran Chamra, I mentioned him earlier. Mm -hmm. And he was basically a a creditor. He was owed a lot of money by the people who took out loans against the football club. So he took control of the football club. And 
the League One season was was quite a dark season. We spent one league one one season in League One. We were restricted by the FA to only signing players on month to month contracts because we couldn't afford to pay them for a full season. We couldn't commit to a full season's of wage. Um, we had charity fundraisers to keep the club afloat, where we basically invited teams from literally anywhere to come and play us in a game to raise money. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time, Herman Horridesen had just taken an, uh, a management role in Iceland, his home country of Iceland, and he brought a team over to play us on a Thursday night. And it was just sort of a, a Pompey Legends versus this um, Reykjavik side. And I think we raised something like 80 grand and that paid next to nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, we just weren't making a dent at all. To the point where the asset stripping was so bad that the the chairs that were used in the boardroom were stacked outside the main entrance of Fratton Park, ready to be sold at auction. Quite extreme. That's how bad it got. And I think that's when a lot of people were protesting and saying, this has to stop. We need to find a solution. And the one game that kind of comes out of all of that was a Tuesday night game on Valentine's Day against Ipswich. And we lost the game 2-0. Michael Chopra scored two. And the fans made a stand that night. And, and we all said, we're not leaving the football stadium. We are not leaving the ground. You'll have, you'll have to arrest every single one of us till we leave. And as a 17, 18-year-old, you kind of got that fire in your belly and you're thinking, I'm, I'm invincible. I, you know, nothing can hurt me. And I think that's what kind of kept the, the, the fire burning, really, was, was that never say die attitude that the club had always had going back to before I was even a, a thought, you know, before I was even born. It was that do or die attitude going back to Stockport at home and Allen ball of noise and we needed to win that game to stay up. And that just transpires to the point of it's not about staying in a division, it's about staying as a football club and remaining in existence. Because an FA Cup win five years ago means nothing if your club doesn't exist anymore. No, no, exactly. And, you know, the one thought that really springs to mind is, uh, is Peter Ridsdale's comment. Um, did we, when he was uh, obviously ending his, his time at Leeds, you know, mm. did we overspend? Um, probably we lived the dream. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it, it's happened twice at Premier League level. Um, and, you know, people seem to forget that, you know, that the likes of the Leeds um, scenario, the likes of the Portsmouth scenario, um, is why financial fair play was brought in the first place. Yeah, uh, yeah. Profit and sustainability um, and I think, regulations. I think that's the one thing that I think Pompey, in a sense, can be proud of. We, we kind of forced the FA to bring some sort of regulation into football and the ownership. And you mentioned about Leeds. Leeds are a prime example of a football club changing hands very quickly. Mm -hmm. I think in the last decade, I think the last four or five years, they've had the same owner and they're pretty good. But before that, maybe for a decade or so, they had, from what I remember, pretty much a new owner every year or every other year. And it was just someone coming in, clearing the debt, couldn't make any money, sold it came in, cleared the debt, couldn't make any money, sold it. And that was the pattern. And it affected Leeds as a football club. But the owners didn't see it as a football club. They saw it as a business and a way to make profit. And 
I think anyone now, if you're looking at buying a football club, don't expect to make a profit because you won't. You will not make a profit. I, I mentioned Salford City earlier. They're a prime example of a bunch of ex-footballers who have got a bit of money to spend and are thinking, you know what, let's have some fun with it. You know, rather than spending it on more Ferraris and Lamborghinis and buying more homes and making more money in a much more um, normal way, should I say. Let's throw some money at a football club. Let's have a bit of fun. Let's build something from the ground up and let's just see where it goes. And if it takes off and if they make a profit by selling the football club, you know what? Fair play to them. Absolutely fair play to them. They have thrown everything at Salford City to get it to where it is. And it's the fans that are ultimately the ones going to be benefiting from it. There's no one else going to benefit from it because they probably won't make their money back. And I think that was kind of similar to us in a sense where we were such a basket case that no one wanted us. No one wanted to buy a football club that was saddled with millions in debt and potentially facing a winding up order and had been in administration three times in four years. And it kind of came to a point where if no one's going to step in, then we have to step in as fans. And I think that was the turning point for a lot of people was when we were told you, there is no one interested by the administrators. No one wants to buy your football club. Yeah. And then it's like, it's a, right. That, that was the, uh, I'm trying to think of his name now, is the ex-pro who's turned it into administrator, isn't it? Trevor Birch. That's the one. He's now head of the EFL. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. I cannot, yeah. I cannot thank Trevor Birch enough because he was, he was the broker of the Chelsea deal to Abramovich. Um, and so he knew what doing the fit and proper persons test meant. He would mm-hmm. not have sold Chelsea to someone who was prepared to put them into a hole and walk away from it. Yeah, There needed to be an organic plan of growth and sustainability. And Abramovich, if he walked away now, Chelsea would be sold in a heartbeat and it would carry on as it is. Mm-hmm. And so it was, it was a difficult situation because no one was prepared to step in and pay whatever it was that we owed, I think something like £25 million or something at the time that we were due to be sold. And the only option really was someone buys us or we go bust and the winding up order comes into effect and the club, a bit like Berry, ceases to exist. Yeah. And we kind of thought, well, we can't let that happen. So negotiations were made with Trevor Birch. How much money do we need to put forward a credible bid to buy the football club that would hold up in the high court at the winding up order case? And he said probably around about three and a half million quid. And we went, oh, wow, three and a half million pound. And we had probably nine, 10,000 season ticket holders. Mm -hmm. So they sort of did the maths and they said, right, if everyone could put a thousand pounds in, we might have enough and you'd all be labelled as shareholders. We yep. might have enough to put forward a formal bid, even if we're slightly short. So they said, here's the deadline. Here's how much you need. You'll get a shareholder certificate from the Pompey Supporters Trust. And, you know, if the club gets purchased, then you'll get X, Y, and Z benefit and, and whatever. And the benefits and all the fancy certificates weren't really a big deal for a lot of people. They just thought, you know what, if I can find a grand, I will do it. And, I was one of those who buddied up with a few other people and we kind of made a, our own little mini consortium. We all put a hundred pound in each at the time. Cause as a teenager, I didn't have a grand line around spare. No, no, no. Um, 
so we all kind of came together and banded together and we said, right, if we can raise a grand between us lot, then we'll put it in as as one share combined between 10 people. And so we did. And then subsequently, we had quite a few local businessmen. They were putting in quite a large sum of money themselves. They were going to be the directors if the purchase went through. Um, and it was kind of on tenter hooks, really, until... The court date we raised the money that was needed and, and a little bit extra on top we went to court and the court was adjourned and, and it was sort of you know is it going to go ahead is it not going to go ahead because it was it was either bought by the fans or, or bust and, and yeah. that was the honest truth and I remember all day spent on the local Portsmouth news website refreshing live from the court stream you know of the reporting and Okay, there's been no update for two hours. What the hell's going on? I'm on the phone to my mates going, have you heard anything? They go, no, we haven't heard anything. I'm thinking, oh my God, this is it. They're going to call it. And they called everyone back into the courtroom and, and the judge gave the verdict and, and the sale went through and it was just... Relief. Yeah, I was going to say elation, but yeah, I think relief is probably the right word to use. It was just a huge weight was lifted for the last sort of four or five years we've been fighting for something and it got to the point you know and, and maybe it should have been done earlier and the fans should have stepped in at a sooner point but when push came to shove we were able to do it and I think that set an example for a lot of other football clubs look at someone like Exeter City you know Exeter are, are purely fan owned um, yeah. clubs like Swansea who have got a majority fan share on the board um, I think that did set a bit of an example and I know for larger clubs it's probably not possible because the owners have so much money invested they don't want to sell 51% or all of their money uh, yep. all of all of their assets to you know a group of supporters but just being able to do it when the back was against the wall was probably the, the proudest moment for I think a lot of a lot of fans really um, and when the wall of fame went up you know the, the, the people that put in the shares went up and it was a a very proud moment, sort of the start of the the last season in League Two. I think that that ball went up, mm-hmm. and it was just kind of like to win the division that season just topped it all off. And and I think, and I'll, I'll touch on that League Two win a little bit later, but it just really defined what fan power can do. And I think it really set a precedent for the rest of the rest of the football league and the rest of you know the English game as a whole that if you want to do it, you can do it. And I think mm-hmm. the example of AFC Wimbledon and, and Berry being refounded, et cetera, et cetera, shows that fan power can and will succeed. Even if it does go to pot, you can still come back as a new group and you can still be successful. And I think, you know, there's plenty of examples of that in football. Now, I think if you said that 20 years ago, a lot of people would have gone, no chance, absolutely no chance will fans own a football club. But yeah, they did, and they. I think they will continue to do so as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so you used the, the phrase "fan power," and the, the phrase that, that that entered my mind is is that it's it's a full on victory for uh, fan power. Mm, um, absolutely, being able to actually um, you know end up owning their club you know, despite all of the adversity, um, and uh, and and making a, a right good fist of actually getting back to the level they probably belong at, which is, you know, at this stage, which is, you know, um, championship level. Mm. Um, they're not quite there, um, but a very strong, a very strong League One uh, squad. Um, and, you know, I suppose in, in some, I mean, it, it wasn't looking great at one point um, in League Two, was it? But 
Um, there was a few hairy moments. I think under fan ownership, the first few years weren't great because I'll be honest, we didn't really know what we were doing. Um, yeah. We had people from different professions that had their strengths and had their weaknesses and we didn't really know what to do. The recruitment at the time for management was quite poor. I'll give you an example. We had the option to, we were, we were down to two managers at a point of who to hire, either Richie Barker or Chris Wilder. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we didn't choose Chris Wilder. No, Richie Barker, wasn't it? Who didn't last very long at all. He got did he? sacked after four months. Um, yeah. And yeah, so it was decisions like that. You just kind of, through gritted teeth, you think, oh, what are you doing? Don't do that. Yeah. Um, but ultimately, we we hired from within Guy um, Andy Orford, sorry, and, and he kept us up and did okay the following season. To an extent, we stayed in the division. That was the priority, really. Um, and then the full rebuild commenced under Paul Cook. And that was kind of the football club going, right, we need to get out of this division now. We need to seriously look at proper candidates. And we scoured the Football League and we saw what Paul Cook had done with Chesterfield. We saw he was out of contract and hadn't signed a new one. He'd just gotten them to the League One playoffs in their first season in League One after winning League Two. And we thought, let's talk to him. Let's see what his vision would be for the football club. And he said, right, he came in and said, this is what I want to do. I think it'll take us two years to do it. Here's the players I want to sign. Have you got the ability to do it? And we said, yeah, let's do it. And the rest really is history. And we wouldn't be in League One now and in as strong a position as we are now if it wasn't for the Supporters Trust making that decision, ultimately owning the football club and then choosing to sell it to the Eisner family. Absolutely. So, I mean, Paul Cook arrived, uh, was that 2015? 15-16, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I recall we played you in a League Cup tie at, at Fratton Park yes. uh, very early on that season. And um, you gave us a lot of problems that day. We yes. were under Steve Clark, obviously now Scotland manager. Yeah, um, of course. But uh, we were just on the on the cusp of going on a reasonable run of form. We didn't quite get to where we wanted to be in the end. Steve Clark only lasted about three months more on the job, but less said about that, the better. (laughs) Um, But no, we had a a reasonable squad, reasonable side. And um, as I say, you you took the lead. Oh, God, what's the name of the guy who's now at Barnsley? Uh, Connor Chaplin. Connor Chaplin, fantastic player. Yeah, he he, he scored. I think Not sure if it was his first, but one of his first goals for Pompey that day. Mm. And uh, it, it, it kind of... Because you've beaten Derby as well in the um, I was just going to say the previous the, round. The first, the, the first glimpse of a proper Paul Cook side was that Derby County game in the cup. Everything just clicked, and I don't think Derby underestimated us at all. I think they played a quite a good, good strong side at the time, mm-hmm. and we we beat them quite convincingly as well. And and Chaplin scored in that game actually, so I think he, it may have been his second goal as a you know, goal from a start or whatever, yeah. um, against Reading. And then for the rest of the season, he was in and around the first team. He, was, he became a bit more of an impact sub. Whenever he came on, he seemed to either create a chance or score a chance. So that obviously gave him a bit of confidence. And, you know, obviously the rest is history. He's now at Barnsley and they got the, the playoffs last season. And then you know, he's obviously doing fantastic things. And like yeah. like a lot of that Paul Cook squad did, um, they've all gone on to do fantastic things. So, wait and see what he does with Ipswich this season because I think they're going to be ones to watch this year if, if his recruitment is anything like it was five years ago 
that 15-16 season, it, it didn't end in uh, promotion, though, did it? It ended in tears. <laughs> I, I won't. I won't deny that there was tears at the very end of that season. I was. I was quite heartbroken because it was the first season in a very long time we had hope. We had a bit of belief, and you kind of thought, if we can do it this year, the first season under a new manager, a new regime, a new squad, what can we do next year, and the year after that, and the year after that, and and you. You, you do that thing as a football fan where you think with your heart and not your head and suddenly you're four years in the future and you're a Champions League winner. Um, and unfortunately, football doesn't work like that. And we we played Plymouth Argyle in the playoffs and they beat us in the final minute of the last game. And yeah, just heartbreak, heartbreak. Yeah. But again, playoff heartbreak, you get used to it. It, it gets, you know, it doesn't get easier the more, more it happens, it, it just doesn't get as hard. You just get used to it. Um, but yeah, con- consider consider that a uh, um, a playoff heartbreak fist bump through the through the, the means of, <laughs> of, of of technology. Yeah, I know exactly how how you feel. Yeah, it's the thing is, it was the first playoff game we played since Leicester in the nineties, and that's quite a feat, really, considering how many times we've been up and down the leagues. Um, and again, we didn't beat Leicester in the 90s either. They beat us in the semi-final in the last few minutes of the game mm-hmm. with a goal that was offside. And a lot of older fans don't forget, don't forgive Leicester for that. But No, sure, I can imagine. Yeah. I remember that because of 92, 93, wasn't it? Yeah, and that was it. Um, been, you had Guy Whittingham, I think, scored 40-odd goals. That 44 season, goals in the season. The top most um, most goals scored in the second division in one season, yeah. So yeah. that Ivan um, Tony record still isn't, you know, it, it's nowhere near Guy Whittingham. <laughs> no, um, and you'd you'd only uh, bizarrely, I think you'd only lost out on promotion, promotion on goal difference. Goal difference, two goal difference. Um, but you know, given the amount of goals that you scored that season, um, <laughs> it just sounds absolutely barking mad. Yeah, but you finished third, didn't you? Yeah, we have Whittingham and, uh, and Walsh Jim up Smith. front. Jim Smith, yeah, Whittingham and Walsh up front. I wasn't born at the time, but uh, this written about in all the books you read that that was the season yeah. that. Was the first real heartbreak for a lot of you know the older Pompey fans, but yeah, um, Whittingham Walsh up front, Jim Smith as manager, and again, it wasn't a team of great players. It was just a team that played with a lot of heart and a lot of belief. And the only real good player we had was Whittingham. He was able to find the back of the net whenever the ball touched him, um, mm-hmm. but he didn't really do a lot at any other club he went to. So it was kind of a bit of a one-off really we kind of took it for granted I think but yeah anyway you know that was the first playoff game against Plymouth we played since the the early 90s so we're going sort of 20 odd years yeah to then have two more in the previous in, well, in the following following four seasons again doesn't it doesn't get any easier but the one thing that a lot of people have pointed out is we are the playoff curse for teams if you get us in the playoffs you will not get promoted <laughs> yeah, because Portsmouth, uh, Portsmouth, Plymouth lost that uh, that season to AFC Wimbledon. Didn't to they? Wimbledon, they did. Yeah, and yeah. Leicester didn't get promoted in '93. Sunderland no, didn't lost get promoted. Swindon. Lost to Swindon. Yeah. Sunderland didn't get promoted. Uh, they yeah, lost, they to lost Charlton. Charlton. Yeah, and Oxford didn't get promoted. No, they didn't. Uh, who did they? They I lost to Wickham, didn't they? Wickham. Yeah. 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 So yeah, don't get us in the playoffs because you neither of us are getting promoted. <laughs> Uh, thankfully, you're not in the championship, so yeah, there's no chance of that. No, not yet, not yet. <laughs> maybe maybe, maybe in a few years. Maybe in a few years. Yeah. Yeah.
Right, so um, moving moving on, we get to my favourite part of the show, significant six. So um, six very simple questions, and um, we'll basically discuss your answers. Um, we've well, we, we obviously know where your, um, your favourite game is going to be. We discussed it a little bit earlier. But, uh, <laughs> let's go back into that that black game, shall we? Yes. Yeah. Um, favorite game is always going to be AC Milan at home. It's one that will forever live in the memory of of everybody. I think some people go, "Oh, but the FA Cup win in two thousand and two thousand eight was the best one." It was a boring game. It was a freaky boring game. Mm-hmm. It was it was won by a tap in by Carnu from a mistake from Enkelman in goal. Enkelman, it, yeah, yeah. It was nothing spectacular. It wasn't a forty yard screamer that won us the game in the last minute. It was just kind of a snore fest until until the final whistle. Um, the AC Milan game had absolutely everything. You know, toe to toe with world beaters, the best in the world, the best of the best, and to take them as far as we did and and. The one painstaking thing is that we didn't win. If we'd have won, it would have been even sweeter. But the fact we didn't lose, the fact we got to see a Ronaldinho free kick and Inzaghi break the European goal scoring record in front of the AC Milan fans who had squeezed themselves into a corner of the Milton end with all their flags and smoke bombs and everything else yeah. that they have. Um, it's just a fantastic, fantastic game. I actually went to the Milan derby in September 2019. In, in Milan, and we were sat behind the Milan ultras, and uh, just it brought back memories of that game immediately. The flags, the smoke bombs, the chanting, everything. And I know it's probably a bit, a bit more excessive at the Milan derby, but they were just the same at Fratton Park, you know, back in two thousand and two thousand and eight, nine. And it's just uh, the atmosphere is something you you forever hear and. When you think about it, you hear the atmosphere, you remember the songs, yeah. you remember the, the roar when the goals went in and just the sheer ecstasy when you're thinking, we're going to be AC Milan, <laughs> <laughs> only to have it snatched away in the 93rd minute like football yeah. does because it's a wonderful game. Absolutely. Did, did they uh, bring many at all? Um, they, they, if I memory serves me right, they probably filled about a third, if not a half of the Milton end. Right, okay, so they brought a so, significant number then. About a thousand, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty good going. Not too bad, is it? No, considering we're not, nowhere near an airport or anything either. So it's the commute from London down and everything else on top. So, mm-hmm. yeah, they did quite well. Credit to them. Yeah. They obviously travelled quite well. So, you've alluded, again, you've already alluded to another sort of, I could call it an away ground in the San Siro, but. Mm. Um, I'm going to try and restrict this to uh, to, to English league grounds. Your fav- favourite away ground? So, in terms of ground, it's a toss-up between two. So, I think Leah mentioned we went to the Etihad um, with Bristol City. Yep. In terms of ground, that's the best ground I've been to. It is absolutely phenomenal. If you've ever been, um, yeah, you'll understand it. When you stand outside, it's just... I mentioned, I mentioned the San Siro. There's lots of things from it that are taken from other football stadiums and it just mm-hmm. fits perfectly. It fits into the skyline perfectly. The whole area has been built around the football club. You've got the academy stadium next to it and the training ground around the corner. The women's t- team um, play there as well. And it's, it's a football village now, isn't it? It it's is, not just yeah. just a stadium. It, you know, you compare that to somewhere like Fratton Park, it's, it's four bits of tin and 
um, concrete squeezed into a into a terraced housing estate. It's not that anymore. You know, it's a grand coliseum of a football stadium, and you know, I know it gets stated for its atmosphere and having empty seats and things like that, but. If you just get the chance to go as a neutral and take it in, it's just incredible. Absolutely incredible. The facilities are fantastic. Even in the away stand, if you stood right up in the sky, a bit like if you are at St. James's Park, it's a fantastic ground. Fantastic ground, yeah. Um, in terms of ground. In terms of favourite ground to go to a game to, um, Griffin Park, Brentford, strangely enough. Interested. Obviously, sadly, no longer with us. No. Um, again, one of the, the sad losses of modern day football. But St James's, um, sorry, St James's Park. Sorry, um, Griffin Park was the first. Uh, Brentford away at Griffin Park was the first game we played under fan ownership, mm-hmm. and we. If you have been to Brentford, you know that it's called Griffin Park because of the Griffin Pub, which is around the corner, which was the Griffin Brewery, which now has a pub on every corner. Um, And so we basically overtook the Griffin, which, if I'm not wrong, was the home pub at the time. And we definitely took more fans there than we had tickets allocated to. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It was just it was just a party atmosphere into the streets and everything. It was just a sea of blue. I think we had about 2000 tickets that day and there must've been three or 4,000 people there. Yeah. Um, maybe people who are Pompey fans that live in London commuted just to celebrate and everything else with us. But yeah, it was just a fantastic, fantastic day out. And we didn't win the game. I think we drew the game three all in the end. I think we, we were three, one or, or three nil up and, and we did draw the game. But um, I just remember the first goal going in under fan ownership and, it was just elation. You know, it was like, we've done it. We're alive. I don't care how this game finishes. And to do it in a stadium as old as, as Griffin Park as well, it kind of felt a bit like a home stadium for us because it's very similar in that aspect, the yeah. way it's built and the era it's built in. Um, and yeah, it's a shame it's no longer with us, but that's probably my favourite stadium to go to on the back of, you know, a, a celebration type thing. Yeah. And um, I'm going to miss Griffin Park. I went there uh, on three or four occasions mm. um, and I always found it I mean there's no love lost between Brentford and Reading but um, I always found it quite quite a welcoming uh, yeah it's quite club. an odd it's quite an odd away stand though isn't it because you've got the terrace underneath and then you've got the seating above but no one sits in the seating the terrace ends up at double capacity <laughs> yeah yeah the Wendy House as they, they call yes. it yes yes uh, that's it yeah so favourite season so you you're expecting me to say 2008? Not necessarily. Mm. I've had some surprising answers so far <laughs> on, on this. 2016-17, um, the League Two winning season. Um, it was a season that built on the disappointment of the playoff loss of the previous year, and, and as we know, teams can get to the playoffs, do really well throughout the whole season and lose out of the playoffs. And then they have that dip of struggling and, and chugging along at the bottom half and just very demotivated for a, for a season. And I think we were keen to avoid that. And we didn't win our first game that season. If I remember rightly, we, we drew. And a lot of fans got very twitchy very quickly and went, oh God, it's going to happen to us. And then we sort of stumbled through the season up until January. And there was a key turning point in 2016-17. We played Crew at home and Crew 
weren't anything special in, in that season. Um, they've subsequently you know, gone to do good things since, which is great for them. But yeah. that season, they were in a bit of a rebuild and they didn't really have an awful lot about them. They were kind of the bottom half mid-table team. And we should have beaten them convincingly. We're at home, full capacity stadium, Tuesday night, under the floodlights, we should have beaten them. And we drew nil-nil. We didn't concede a goal, but we didn't score a goal. And it was lots of sideways, backways passing. And a lot of fans blew their top that night. And I remember hearing the following day or a couple of days afterwards that the team talk that was given was given not by the manager, but by the captain, Michael Doyle. And he basically said, look, if we want promotion this season, this has to stop. This, you know, unmotivated, backwards, sideways passing and not following the instructions has to stop here. And if it doesn't stop, I was sure you're not picked. And we went on something like an 11-game winning run. And we suddenly found ourselves into the playoffs. <clears throat> and we went away to Carlisle. And Carlisle at that time were a bogey team of ours. We could never win away at Carlisle. We won 3-0. Convincingly won 3-0. And you, again, you get that belief. You start to think, well, if we win the next game, then we're only four points off the top three. And if we win the game after that and they lose, then we're only one point away from the top three. Bear in mind, three were up in league to league to automatically. Um, so you've got a bit more opportunity to get automatically promoted rather than suffer the playoff heartbreak again. So yeah. that was always the aim. And it came down to such a fantastic run of form. We got to Easter over the Easter Bank holiday weekend and we went away to Notts County. And if memory serves me right, it was on the Good Friday. And I was on a train back to university at the time. I went to uni in Cardiff and I listened to the entire game on the radio. Um, on my phone and it was probably about 30 seconds behind the actual game itself because it was being broadcast by the internet yeah we'd have that, that horrible delay mm-hmm. and so I had to turn off all notifications on my phone and everybody messaging me saying we'd scored and we were also relying on Luton to not win at Mansfield which is probably what, 15 miles away mm-hmm. um, so we were really dependent on that game we won our game 3-1 Luton drew one all, I think. At Notts County, yeah. Yeah. At Notts, uh, yeah, we won 3-1 at Notts County. Luton drew um, at Mansfield. So we were we were promoted automatically. And we were thinking, we've done it. I, I remember I changed trains at Chippenham. And I, uh, not Chippenham, sorry, Swindon. And I just let out this huge burst of emotion. I was on the phone to my dad. We were both in tears, um, you know, openly in public. At that point, I just didn't care. You know, I'm there in my in my Pompey shirt with my with my suitcase, my rucksack going back to uni, and I'm on the phone waiting for my next train, just in tears, crying to my dad and just elated. And I think that was the first real moment. And it, it felt like we'd earned our success. You know, I mentioned about getting promoted to the Premier League, winning an FA Cup and all the rest of it. It felt like we didn't earn them because we didn't do a lot as fans to get there. But it felt like we earned this. We deserved this. After all, we went through with the previous ownership and the administrations and the point deductions and the relegations. To then own the club and get promoted was just a real big middle finger to everybody higher up from the FA that had doubted us throughout the whole process. Yeah. And to then go one extra on the final day of the season to win the title was just phenomenal. 
it, it was just the cherry on the icing on the cake that season because we were fighting with Plymouth and Doncaster that year for the title and we were nowhere near. We hadn't been top of the league all season. We hadn't even touched first. And we were first for 20 minutes on the last day of the season and we won the title. It's it's a remarkable story, really, considering where you um where you were just a few seasons before. Yeah. Um, and it's like going on that run of form after you mentioned that crew game, um, and you know winning actually getting promoted with I think was it three or four games before the end of the season. Yeah, uh, I think and then finally, four. yeah, and then uh, ending the season, if I remember rightly, with a with an absolute stonking win against Cheltenham. 6-1 win. Yeah, 6-1. Yeah, I was at that game as well. Yeah, it was just, you know, the result didn't really matter. I think that the players were just told, go and score as many as you can because we actually won the title on goal difference. Yeah. And so it was a case of score as many goals as you can. I don't care how you score them, just go and score them. You've got mm-hmm. nothing else to play for. You've, you've, you've been promoted. Just go and have fun. Go and score goals. And everybody was there on the <laughs> the old school little um, handheld radios, the headphone in, going, what's going on at Grimsby where um, Plymouth are playing? What's going on at Doncaster where Hartlepool are playing? And Grimsby scored and then Hartlepool scored and the ground erupted. And you're thinking, hang on a minute, the players all sort of turn around in shock and we just passed the ball five yards. We haven't scored. <laughs> <laughs> I remember, I remember um, cause that because that... Um... Uh, Hartlepool Doncaster game was on was on Sky, wasn't it? Yes. Because Hartlepool got relegated, didn't they? They did. Um, yeah. So it was it was it was reliant on I think it was reliant on Grimsby to lose to Plymouth. So it would have meant that Plymouth would win the title, Doncaster would finish um, third, and we would finish second if Hartlepool beat Doncaster. And they actually had the trophy up in the northeast. They had the League Two trophy up in the northeast. Yeah. They were they were fully expecting it was going to go to Plymouth or Doncaster. So they had it on a lorry or in a van waiting between the two grounds and depending on who would win. Um, not expecting either of them to win and us to win our game, as convincingly as we did. So <laughs> it then had to be transported down overnight to the South Coast and the following day we actually got our trophy. Yeah. Um, but do you know what? It, it was one of those things. We didn't care. We didn't care. You had all the players on the South Stand in the uh, in the box at the top where all the executives sit, celebrating, throwing beer over each other. When the when the fans ran on the pitch, you had players on their shoulders, and it just it kind of felt like the players got it. They finally got it. You know, we had a group of players who understood the football club, a manager who understood the football club, and we owned the football club. So, yeah. you know, it it was never a better time than that season. It was just sheer elation. Yeah. So, does your favourite ever away day come from that season as well? No, it doesn't. Interesting. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Um, Favourite ever away day? There's a few. <laughs> um, I think in recent times, in terms of going to a game, I think Bolton away the season before last was quite good. Um, that was a good away game. Lovely ground, really easy to get to. Nice and easy drive. Um, facilities were quite good only thing is there was no beer nearby there was no pub that was the only thing that upset me um, mm-hmm. but other than that fantastic away day we won um, 2-0 I think it was in the end um, nice easy drive home and, and that was about it in terms of performance 
I think Charlton away, Charlton away was a bit of a feisty one. We played Charlton in 2017, 18. Mm-hmm. And we played them on the 25th anniversary of them being bought by the Charlton Supporters Trust. And yep. they, at the time, very similar to we were, were in a situation where they had to be bought by their own fans and then they subsequently sold it on to someone else. Um, and so the first game they played as under the Supporters Trust was against Portsmouth at the Valley. And mm-hmm. so with the EFL's agreement, they scheduled our game with them to be on the same day, 25 years anniversary of it happening. Charlton fans packed the ground out. Pompey fans packed the away end, away end out. We don't generally seem to get much luck with London away games. We don't seem to get many of them. Um, so when we do get them, especially at a stadium like the Valley, it is full. Um, so it's always a good day out. And we turned up, you know, yeah, nice journey on the train and, and we got to the ground nice and easy. And we managed to have a very scrappy 1-0 win that we completely didn't deserve. And that propelled us into the playoffs at the time and, and dropped Charlton out of it. And the Charlton fans weren't too happy about it. And it, <laughs> it, it kind of felt like we turned up and, and sort of spoiled their day. And in a way, it kind of felt nice. Um, so, yeah, in, in probably the last, uh, I don't know, five to ten years, that's probably my favourite away day um, yeah. that I can kind of recall. There's, a, there's quite a few that I can't recall um, for various reasons. But, yeah, yeah. Um, that or, or potentially Newport County away. That was a very good away day. Um, Boxing Day away on a temporary terrace that's exposed to all the elements. Mm-hmm. And we came from 2-0 down to win 3-2 in the last minute. And that was in the title winning season. And that was a fantastic game. Fantastic Always game nice to do. Yeah. We, 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 we never speak to Leah about one of those, uh, Ashton. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we, we were never a team at the time to come back from a losing position or to score late goals. So to do both in, in the same game was, yeah, it, it was just fantastic. And, and to battle battle the elements to get into the ground and battle the elements inside the ground. And yeah, it, yeah, it, it's one of those that kind of is the memory that a friend of mine and I always kind of bring up when we, when we chat about Boxing Day football. It's always, oh, do you remember Newport when we almost got hyperthermia? Um, but it's all right. It's all right because Ender Stevens pinged one in from 18 yards out and won the game 3 2. Um, so, yeah, it, it's one of those that you'll always end up bringing up with, with friends. And a lot of a lot of my pals go, Oh, I wish I was there at that game. I said, Well, you got invited, but, you know, apparently Christmas was more important than going to football. So, you know, you, you opted <laughs> out that season, I'm afraid. Yeah, yeah. No, football's always the always most important thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Christmas is only Boxing one day. day Christmas is one day. Football's for life. <laughs> yeah, true. So, um, your favourite current Pompey player? See, this I, I, I sort of I spent a lot of time trying to think about who this would be because we lost a lot of players this summer. Um, we probably had before the new signings come in, and I can't say they're my favourite player because I haven't seen them play yet. Um, we have probably about eleven players who are still on the books from last season, so mm-hmm. it's quite a, a, a tough choice to make I probably would have said Ben Close if we'd have kept him I'm a very big fan of Ben Close he's now gone to Doncaster on a free transfer um, I was quite disappointed to see he didn't take up a new deal but I fully understand why he didn't again we offered him reduced terms he probably wasn't going to be guaranteed first team football week in week out and he'd kind of been one of those players that 
had fallen in and out of favour with different managers over the last decade. Um, mm-hmm. But fantastic player. I wish him all the best. But of this current squad that are left over, um, I would probably say Callum Johnson, our right back. Um, mm-hmm. And it's probably a bit of a, a left field choice. Um, but of the players that are there, a lot of people say, why wouldn't you pick someone like Curtis or Marquis? People are very indifferent over those two, and I'm, I'm a bit in, indifferent about them as well. They seem to have very good games and very poor games, so I'm a bit reluctant to pick them on that. Um, Callum Johnson is a right-back that not many people probably know about. We signed him from Accrington Stanley last summer. Um, I think we paid a fee of about two, £300,000 for him, which for a right-back in League One is a fair bit of money. Um, he is, I think, 24, 25 years old, mid-20s. He's still got quite mm-hmm. a bit of quite a bit of growing to do to hit his peak. Um, and he's one of those players that he may not be the most technically gifted, but he will run and run and run. And I think in the lower two divisions, all you can ask from players is just effort, 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 effort. He can cross the ball in. Um, I think under Kenny Jacket, he was very restricted in what he was allowed to do in terms of going forward. I, I'm hopeful under the Cowleys and from what we saw from the first 12 games they, they had in charge of us at the end of last season, he was given that freedom to get forward. And I think he got three or four assists. So if you can have a, an assist every three games for next season, you're looking at 10 to 15 assists, which I'd be more than happy with from a right back. Yeah. Um, it probably won't happen, but you know he's one of those players that will put his all in every game, and you know you can't really fault a player for that. You know, no, sure. Uh, everybody loves a good fullback, don't they? Yes, uh, they, they add. They, they need to add a lot to the uh, to the attacking phase um, mm. of play in the modern game, don't they? But sometimes I think it's lost in in that they are defenders first, aren't they? Yeah, defenders first, attackers second. I think if you've got a fullback that can go forward, it's a bonus. But you know. Yeah, as a manager, you have to fit in with the strength of your players. If you've got players who can't go forward or don't have the legs, I know the example is we had Charlie Daniels last season for six months on a free transfer. And you say Charlie Daniels, or you think Bournemouth, Charlie Daniels, Premier League, fantastic player. Not at 35. Um, mm-hmm. He's got one leg and it's his left foot. It's his left leg and he can, all he can do is kick a ball. We can't run. Um, and so if you're playing with you know, attacking fullbacks or wingbacks, if you like, he can't do that role. He can't do it. He's not big enough or strong enough to be a centre-back or, or a centre-half, but, you know, you kind of have to play to his strengths. You have to keep him back. So you have to cover it somewhere else with that that space. And, you know, you have to play to the strengths. I think Callum Johnson has got all of that in abundance. He can get forward. He can come back. He's times his challenges very well. He seems to get the ball in the box at the right place at the right time. And sometimes there's no one on the end of it. But again, that's not his fault. Um, so, yeah, I, I, that's ultimately why I picked him. We all have a good fullback. So, yeah. And your favourite all-time bombed player? I was torn between two. Um, I've mentioned them both already. Um, strangely enough, one of them is actually a fullback. <laughs> um, I, don't know, I don't know there's a recurring theme here but both of them are also defenders um, the, the, the first player that sprung to mind immediately was Linvoy Primus yeah. um, you know a lot about Linvoy from his time at Reading and mm-hmm. Linvoy was one of those players who spent a lot of time sort of knocking about the football league club to club couldn't really settle anywhere and we took him in on trial and we signed him when we got promoted to well, the season we got promoted to the Premier League. And he 
was nowhere near Premier League quality. He was never really anywhere near Premier League quality, and he won't, you know, deny that. But a bit like I mentioned about Johnson, he was a grafter. He would work hard in the 06-07 season. We had a centre back par- partnering of Sol Campbell and Limboy Primus. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. That's how far we'd come as a football club, and he was still there. And I think that spoke a lot of the man, and he was very much a man of the community. He gave an awful lot back to the local area. His kids played football locally. Um, he brought a book out actually um, called Transformed several years ago, and I, I met him mm-hmm. when the book came out. and he would sit and chat for hours. He was, you know, always a happy, smiling man. He'd always give you time. And yeah, just one of those that would never say, oh, I'm too busy. Yeah. I mean, we signed him from Barnet. Um, mm. It was uh, Terry Bullivant that signed him mm. um, in a joint deal with Lee Hodges, who also joined us from, from Barnet. Um, and I always remember him as a, as a very fair player. Mm. He had three years um, at Reading. Um, but he, he he was wholehearted, um, mm. but never never gave an inch, and he, he didn't didn't play in the best Reading teams. I mean, we got relegated his first season, um, and then we struggled um, for a couple of seasons after that, particularly under Tommy Burns. Mm. Um, but yeah, he was you know much like you, you say, he was a grafter. He was uh, he was he was wholehearted. But you know, he, he gave he gave stuff back to the club. Mm. Um, and he left a everything bit of a shame, on the pitch. Really. He always left yeah. everything on the pitch. He'd, he'd always walk off exhausted, and you knew he'd put a shift in. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and he, yeah, so it was it was a bit of a shame when he left. Really, we wanted him to stay, but we were obviously Division Two as it was then in old money, um, mm. League One now. Portsmouth came in with a contract offer, and um, the rest of they say is history. Yeah. Um, yeah, and he he spent probably the best part of seven, eight, maybe nine years with us until mm-hmm. he finally decided to call it a day. Um, but yeah, a fantastic, just a fantastic person, really. Um, yep. Not necessarily as, as a footballer, but just a fantastic person. Um, never afraid to uh, to give an inch. You yeah. had another another one you know, that you mentioned. It was Limboy Primus, and um, there was another defender involved. Yes. So <laughs> the other one is Herman Horidison. Um, yep. played in the same team as Linvoy. Um, and a lot of people might say, oh, you know, why haven't you picked someone like David Norris for his goal against the red and white down the, down the road or whatever. But, you know, I've met David Norris before, fantastic bloke, but Herman Horidison just, just, just pips it for me in terms of time with Primus. I think Herman was one of those players, again, like Primus, was signed on a free transfer from Charlton. They just got relegated. They, you know, he wasn't the best of players, but, he was a grafter. He worked really hard. He understood the football club from the minute he walked in the door. Even now, when we've played at Wembley in, in cup finals for the, the Checker Tree Trophy a few years ago, he was there. Um, he was there on the microphone singing the song, was trying to pump the crowd up. And, you know, for a six foot four Icelandic um, fullback, he's, he's loud. He was very loud. <laughs> um, but he just worked so hard. Um even to the point where I mentioned when we were in financial trouble when he was a manager at, at Reykjavik in um, Iceland, he brought the team over. He paid for the flights and everything and, and paid money into the um, the fundraiser for the game and actually took part in the game as well. He played for both mm-hmm. sides. He, he swapped shirts at halftime and played for Portsmouth for the second half. But, you know, and uh, he stayed with us 
until he was in his 30s and then he left and, and I think he went to Coventry, played a couple of games there until he was, you know, pretty much running himself into the ground with injuries mm-hmm. and called it a day. But he was, you know, part of the FA Cup winning team. He would always work his absolute socks off for everybody and, and he was always happy to chat to people, much like I said about Limboy. Um, just a very wholehearted person. Um, yeah. And he scared a lot of players, which is even <laughs> even better. There's a there's a very very good image actually of a, I think him shouting at Carlos Tevez um, from 2008, and you can kind of and Carlos Tevez is not a sort of bloke that would fear anything, um, yeah. and you can kind of see a little bit of fear in his eyes when Herodison starts shouting at him. <laughs> and one of the funniest things that I, I always remember is that. Horidison and, and Jamo, David James, always had a very good relationship together. They went and managed a, a, a club in India for a little while as well as sort of co-managers or manager and assistant. They've always been good friends, but Jamo always says the one defender he would never shout at was Horidison because he knew he'd shout back. Yeah. Um, and Jamo was renowned for shouting at his defence when he conceded a goal. You know, why were you not following him? Where were you? Where's the offside trap? Blah, blah, blah. The yeah. one player who never shout at was Horidison. <laughs> just through <just laughs> fear. It's uh, something about the Icelandic mentality as well. I mean, we've had our own um, really, really good experiences with uh, at least three Icelandics, Gilbert mm. Sigurdsson being the most recent one. Um, but of course, in 05, 06, and a couple of seasons after that, Ivar Ingemarsson mm. uh, and Brynjar Goodison. Of course. Um, yeah, and, yeah. You know, you look across English football and the Icelandic players that have, that have, that have played, I don't think you'll find a club that dislikes their Icelandic players. No. You know, Gajonsson at Chelsea and Bolton. Um, to name but to name but you know just another one. Um, Goodmanson at Burnley. Yeah, yeah. They're just they're just generally they they just get 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 the football in this country, don't they? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, and I think they just they just understand the passion that people have for it as well. You know, a lot of players sort of come and go in football, and they don't really care about the fans and their thoughts or whatever. But you know, the Icelandic players just seem to get it. They seem to understand it, and I think. If we go back to the 2016 Euros when that Icelandic team, you know, knocked England out and had a fantastic run, the passion with their fans, you know, with the Icelandic um, chanting and, and the clapping and everything else, it was just when you're a neutral, when you've been knocked out, you can watch it and you can admire it and you think, wow, they get it, they get it, and and it rubs off on the players and at any level when Icelandic players seems to play out, they seem to get it from the fans' perspective. They want to win just as much as the fans do. Mm-hmm. I think that's a, a really good place to end there, actually, a really positive place. Um, Harry, I've really enjoyed it, um, as I do most weeks, or every week, should I say. Um, <laughs> but, uh, no, it's been really cathartic experience talking to you um, about your your support for Portsmouth. Yeah, thank you the for having me. That, no, it's been an absolute pleasure. The issues that Portsmouth have faced, of course, that you... you, you um, are you still a, a joint shareholder or is that uh, now, now gone? No, that, that all ended, sadly, when we um, sold the club to the Eisner family or the Tonante company. So uh, yeah. Michael Eisner is now the chairman, the former CEO of Disney. And okay. um, he's got big plans, big investment this summer and next year and uh, the new, new-looking Fratton Park, hopefully in a couple of years' time. Um, so yeah, watch this space, and and hopefully if we can get to the championship, it'll be an even sweeter um, time, you know, to to be under their ownership, really. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe away fans will actually have a decent concourse. I can't <laughs> promise you that. <laughs> uh, the old Milton end, eh? Yeah.
So, no, Harry, it's been really an absolute pleasure. Just a couple of uh, quick bits on from me. Um, as ever, you can follow me on Twitter, at Terrace Memoirs. Uh, there's a Facebook group, the same name. Um, if you want to come on the show or you know anybody that, that might want to come on the show, you want to refer people or you've got any queries or questions or any criticism or whatever, um, there's an email address as well, uh, terracememoirs at gmail.com. Um, this just leaves me to say um, thanks to Harry once again, um, and um, hopefully uh, our paths will meet at championship level. Um, <laughs> Fingers crossed. In the near future. Um, but, uh, yeah, this is Terrace Memoirs, episode 10, over and out.